0: Good morning, everybody. Will oh, you hear me? you hear me? Come on. There we go. Good morning, everybody. It's, it's great to see you. Uh, if, if we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as, as one of our lead pastors. If you join us for the first time, maybe first time in a really long time, we're so excited to have you. We hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted. You make yourself at home. You fit right in here today at the Vista. Now, those of you who know me know that uh, stand-up comedy is a bit of a guilty pleasure of of mine, and I've always loved comedy everybody loves comedy unless you have a very dead soul inside you we all like comedy but during a particularly difficult and painful season of my life a few years back stand-up comedy in particular was a source of really unexpected joy for me in an otherwise pretty joyless season of my life and so literally every night for a couple of months I would watch stand-up comedy before I was going to bed because it was the only thing that I had found that could help me just kind of dial back the anger and the anxiety and the angst that I was feeling during the season. And for basically all of human history, we, we've known that laughter and comedy and humor are these very essential ingredients in a whole and healthy life. And our ancient intuitions have really just been confirmed by modern science because we now know that there are all these very powerful medical benefits to laughter. Now, more specifically, laughter literally undoes the effects of stress on your body. So think about this. What exactly is going on in your body when you feel stressed? Well, when you feel stressed, it's because this internal alarm has been triggered in your brain because you think that you're facing a threat. So when your body ramps up to try to face this threat, this means it ramps up the production of hormones like adrenaline and cortisol in particular because those things are really good at getting your body ready to fight or flight. And that's a good thing. Stress can be a good thing because there are a lot of very threatening things in this world, and we need bodies that know how to respond to threats. So for example, have you ever wondered why there are no laid-back meerkats in the world? <laughs> why they're always freaked out? I'll tell you why. It's because all the laid-back meerkats were eaten, and they didn't get to pass on their genes. I know, I know y'all are worried about this meerkat, so I want to show you. He makes it. Show him the next time. He doesn't make it. No, he doesn't make it. <laughs> There are no laid-back meerkats. The world's a ruthless place. So you get it. Stress can be a good thing. If that guy had been a little more stressed out, he would have passed on his genes. But as we also know, stress can also be a bad thing. Now, speaking physiologically, there's a certain toll that is taken when your body ramps up to face a threat. And that toll is that your body has to neglect certain other functions, namely like your immune system would be one. Now that makes sense when you think about it, because if your body is having to decide whether or not it should send in the adrenaline troops to fight off a grizzly bear or leave the immune system troops stationed to help prevent you getting whooping cough, that's a pretty easy decision, isn't it? I'd rather take my chances with whooping cough than the grizzly bear, okay, so that makes sense. But while it's good for your immune system to, uh, you know, kind of shut down in the event of a grizzly bear attack, it, it is really bad for your body to chronically neglect your immune system. Because your body thinks that you're being attacked by a grizzly bear all day, every day. Because stress has become chronic for you. And that's why chronic stress and loads of adrenaline and cortisol pumping through your body over time is really, 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 really bad for you. And that's where laughter comes in. Laughter, again, literally undoes the effects of stress on your body. Stress winds your body up. Laughter unwinds your body. Laughter shuts down the production of these things like adrenaline and cortisol. And it releases these good vibe neurochemicals like dopamine. And so literally laughter sends this primal voice, this primal message to our bodies that says something to the effect of, hey, listen up, you can stop freaking out. There's no grizzly bear, no grizzly bear in sight. And it's going to be okay. That's what laughter says to our bodies. And our bodies know that that's what laughter is saying to it. There are countless other very important and documented uh, health benefits to laughter. But for our purposes this morning, it leads us to a more important question. Namely, what exactly is it that strikes us as funny when we find something funny? Right? What is funny? What's funny about funny? And of course, to some extent, funny is in the eye of the beholder. You know, funny is in the ear of the laugher. But there is a pretty universally agreed upon principle that laughter, that funny, is very closely related to something that we might call incongruity. Incongruity. And the basic idea is that something strikes us as funny when expectation and reality don't match up. When two things are together that we don't think belong together, when, as in the most classic example, if you're a child of the 90s, you got a fat guy in a little coat, right? (laughs) What's funny is the incongruity, right? So, for example, in this Chris Rock bit that we just watched, and if you didn't find it funny, the elders will pray for you, okay? You need to loosen up a little bit, okay? (laughs) In that bit, what was funny was what? Well, it was the incongruity of it all, right? It's the incongruity of Lululemon a very high-end fashion company imagining itself a beacon of morality. The incongruity of Lululemon telling us how much they care about social justice while they sell hundred dollar yoga pants to rich people. The incongruity of Chris Rock, a black man in America saying he would prefer a pair of $20 racist (laughs) yoga pants to a pair of $100 non-racist yoga pants, whatever those apparently are. I promise that all of this is relevant. I promise it is. Because there is no greater source of incongruity, okay, of expectation and reality not matching up, and thus no greater source of laughter in all the world than the good news of the gospel, than the hope of the empty tomb, than the unexpected faithfulness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, and so if you have your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 17, 18, and 21, and what we're going to do here is look at these three broken, but it's a continuous story about laughter and God's promises and the relationship between the two, the very essential relationship between the two. All right, you read along on the screen or in your Bibles throughout Genesis 17, 1 through 2, then we'll jump ahead to verse 15. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. It's quite the introduction. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Jump ahead now to verse 15. So then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai anymore, but Sarah shall be her name. I would have switched the name up a little more than that, but that's just me. Um, I will bless her. And I will indeed give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed at God. And he said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, this is his other son through Hagar, might live before you. But God said, No, 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 no. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Okay, Jump ahead now, Genesis 18, verses 1 through 2. Now the Lord appeared again to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. This is God in the form of three men, apparently. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. We'll pick the story up in verse 9. Then they, God, said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, she's there in the tent. He said, well, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah, she was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah, they were old. They were advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, hey, uh, why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am sold? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at the next time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, No, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And God said, "Ah, But you did. Um, (laughs) Genesis 21 now, end of the story, verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah, as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everybody who hears about this is going to laugh with me. All right, Genesis 17, 18, 21. So for a little bit of context here. God has singled out this couple, Abraham and Sarah, to be the means through which God brings redemption to this world, that east of Eden has fallen deeper and deeper into sin and suffering. And God's plan to redeem the world is to bless this couple, Abraham and Sarah, with a really big family that's then going to go out and bless all the families of the world. It's God's plan. It's a great plan. It is a great plan. Uh, With the one very important caveat being that Abraham at this time is 75 years old, And Sarah's 65 years old, and they don't have any children because Sarah, for whatever biological reason, can't have children. (laughs) Bit of a kink in the plan, right? But hey, whatever. All things are possible with God. So they just trust God and they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait until Abraham is 99 years old, and God still has not come through for him. At this point here in Genesis 17, God demonstrates a lot of EQ, I think. Because he realizes that he's been uh, making Abraham wait 24 years for this promise. Can you imagine how long that must be? Now, in God's defense, time is different for him than it is for us. So I like to think he's probably just talking to Abraham. He's like, hey, Abraham, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a son. His name's going to be Isaac. It's going to be amazing. Then God probably got distracted. saw a squirrel. Squirrel. (laughs) Abraham, what were you saying? Oh, you are 100 years old now. My bad, man. A day's like a thousand years for me. I'm sorry, dude. It's my fault. Um, and so Abraham realized, man, I need to, God realized I, I need to help my guy Abraham out. I really made him wait a long time. And so he tells him, hey, I'm going to reaffirm this promise. I'm going to give you a son. And what does Abraham do? Well, Abraham, bless his heart, this is what the text says. You read it. He falls on the ground laughing at God. And what does Abraham find so funny? Like, what was so funny? What was funny about what God had said to him? Well, what was funny was the incongruity of it all. The incongruity of Abraham's situation situated beside God's promise. Abraham hears this, he's like, God, are you kidding me? I'm gonna have a kid. I am a hundred years old. My wife is 90. So, you know, it's been a minute, man. It's been a minute since the sensual sounds of Marvin Gaye have been heard in the old tent. You know, I, just, I don't know if I'm gonna be up for it. I just don't know. And so Abraham's, you know, his, his expectations, they don't match the reality of God's promises. So he laughs. He laughs at God. He laughs at God's face. And one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture, God sees Abraham just rolling on the ground laughing at him. Right? And, and instead of striking him with a lightning bolt to the loins, which is what I would have done, were I, the big guy, God says, okay, okay, you think this is funny? You think this is funny, Abraham? Well, here's the deal. When I come through for you, you're going to name your little baby boy that I'm going to give you Isaac. You know what the name Isaac means? literally means laughter. Yeah, because when I come through for you and blow your expectations out of the water, we'll we'll see who's laughing then, big boy. God says, I'm going to make this covenant to redeem the world through the birth of this little boy named Laughter. Literally named Laughter. In Genesis 18, we get a continuation of this story, but this time it's a little bit more Sarah-centric. Abraham and Sarah, they're hanging out at the the camp uh, around this oak grove when God, apparently in the form of these three men, which some have seen as this elusive reference to the Trinity, shows up and uh, once again reaffirms this promise to give Abraham a son. And apparently Abraham has not told Sarah about this visit he had with God in Genesis 17. And I don't know, but I find it really encouraging to know that even Abraham and Sarah, okay, one of the most important and revered couples who has ever lived, were apparently really terrible at communicating with one another right i know mean, you feel like that's something you should have told your wife hey what'd you do earlier today I oh, just talked with god and he said good to go on the kid you know it's still gonna happen it's like have you ever had one of those couples in your life they're so perfect they never fight you know what i'm talking about and then you finally get a little glimmer of a fight in public and you're like thank you jesus i just needed to know that these people were not perfect. That's what's going on here. They, they have not uh, communicated well. Anyways, Sarah, she's in the tent. She's apparently doing a little bit of eavesdropping, and she overhears God reaffirming this promise to give Abraham and Sarah a kid. And she doesn't fall on the ground laughing like old man Abraham does, but uh, we're told that she kind of laughs to herself. She's like, are you kidding? I'm going to have a baby. My husband is a 100 years old. Now her words here Shall I really have pleasure? My husband being a hundred years old. Y'all giving that man way too much credit. And then in this very delightful detail, we are told that God actually confronts Sarah about this. And God's like, hey Sarah, why are you laughing? And Sarah, you know, she's just behind this tent, you know, she's like, oh no, I wasn't. And God's like, yeah, but you did. Omniscience here. What are you, are you really gonna tell me you didn't laugh? And this brings us to the end of the story, Genesis 21. A year after making Abraham and Sarah laugh, their firstborn son, Isaac, or more literally, laughter is born to him. And what does Sarah say, Genesis 21 verse six? God has made laughter for me, literally. God made this little boy named Laughter for her. And everybody who hears about this is gonna laugh with me. And as Dallas Willard uh, reminds us, God doesn't make Abraham and Sarah name their kid laughter as a form of punishment. <laughs> you know, that'd be kind of cruel. But rather as a perpetual reminder that God is a God who violates our expectations with a faithfulness that is so outrageously good and kind and joyful that all we can really do in response to it is laugh. What else are you going to do? Right? The incongruity of redemption of our hopeless situation situated within God's massive faithfulness is so outlandish that it demands laughter. And so if you don't see the humor in the gospel, if your faith is never a source of laughter for you, then, man, I, I think maybe you haven't really understood the gospel. This came up a few times during our series on Ecclesiastes uh, where we noted this understandable But perhaps borderline perverse fascination that we modern people have with catastrophizing. You remember talking about that? How we modern people, we have this tendency to act like life is either a catastrophe or it's a catastrophe waiting to happen. And this manifests in all sorts of ways, but perhaps most clearly in this really strange phenomenon wherein the people who have less to worry about than any people who have ever lived, you and me, safest most prosperous will live the longest you name it people who have less to worry about than any people who've ever lived we somehow managed to find a way to worry about more than any people who have ever lived it's this really odd loop that we've got ourselves in and there is some nuance involved in interpreting the data on our current mental health crisis that we've all heard a lot about so for example does this uh, apparent spike in mental health problems does this mean that we have way more mental unhealth than we've ever had before Or could it mean that we're just way more comfortable reporting and being honest about the mental unhealth that has always been there? Or could it be working kind of the opposite way? And this apparent spike in mental health problems is due to the fact that we're now much more aggressive in diagnosing things as mental health disorders than we were previously. So, for example, uh, when the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for the American Psychiatric Association was originally released, I think in the early 50s, it listed around 100 mental health disorders. It's a lot, but listed around hundred. But over time that list grew and it grew and it grew and it grew until the point where there was around 300 mental health disorders now listed. And suddenly half of all Americans qualified as having a mental health disorder. All right, so it'd be like if it, was, if it was back in the day, you know, and there was just something wrong with you, like you, you, you pulled for Texas A&M. Okay, just hear me out, hear me out. <laughs> hear me out. Back in the day, if you did that, we would all have just known that you were a bad person. <laughs> now, you'd be diagnosed with a, a mental health disorder, be that this person's a masochist. They enjoy inflicting pain upon themselves. And So you see how the diagnosis has just changed a little bit in these different years. Um, that has been dialed back a little bit recently because people started asking some really good questions about whether or not we were now calling things mental health disorders that were maybe better understood as just garden-variety being a human is kind of hard. Difficulty. So the psychologist Richard McNally, he put it like this. Civilians who underwent the terror of World War II, especially Nazi death facilities, would surely be puzzled to learn that having a wisdom tooth extracted, encountering obnoxious jokes at work, or giving birth to a healthy baby after an uncomplicated delivery can cause post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay? And so whether it's that we're now just more comfortable confessing mental health issues that have always been there, or if it's that we've become a bit overzealous in calling things mental health issues nowadays. What is clear is that we are all now much more prone to think of ourselves as mentally unhealthy. What is clear is that there's now a very strong cultural tide pulling all of us, progressives, conservatives, everybody in between, toward anxiety and catastrophizing feel the pull of it and now look I am well aware that the absolute worst thing that you can do for people who are sad scared angry and anxious is what to tell them to just stop it <laughs> you know, just stop it why just stop doing it just stop it y'all seen that Bob Newhart's skit? just stop it stop it I know that doesn't work look my middle son is currently afraid of werewolves Apparently, he has the same pathology Sarah Hammond had, if you heard her sermon. It's really embarrassing because he's 17 years old. I'm just kidding. He's not 17. He's six. Um, And so at least once a a week, I'll be putting him to bed, you know, say his prayers, tuck him in. I'll go to shut the door, and he'll say, Dad, don't leave. I'm afraid a werewolf's going to get me. And I'm afraid I'm not the most sympathetic father at bedtime, you know, so I just give him a silver bullet and wish him good luck. No, I don't. I don't do that. Aim for the head. Um, I don't do that. Now, every night when he tells me he's, you know, scared of a werewolf, I say, buddy, you know werewolves aren't real. They're not real. And every single time he responds and he goes, I know. And that just makes it even worse. (laughs) (laughs) How are you going to kill an unreal werewolf, dad? What's a silver bullet going to do, man? You haven't thought this through. So I get it. I really do. I get it. You can't just stop it. I get it. But as one who has been tasked with proclaiming the truth of the gospel, I, I do find myself theologically obligated to remind you that you are not obligated to go through life chronically sad, scared, angry, and anxious. Because a lot of us seem to think that we are. We think that chronic sadness and anxiety is just like the tithe we have to pay in order to be responsible people and serious Christians, because after all, everything's just so awful. Isn't everything so awful? It's awful. It's all awful. If you're a more, perhaps progressive person, You think it's awful. It is awful that we have to live in this horrifically unjust, oppressive, misogynist, racist, sexist, colonialist society. And most importantly, Lululemon stands with you, okay? You need to know (laughs) Lululemon has your back. It's very important that you know that. Now, conservatives, you know you're not any better. Oh, no, if you're a more conservative person, then you think it's awful. It is just awful that we live in this increasingly godless, unpatriotic, secular, liberal, nuthouse and we're just one more election cycle away from doom. (laughs) Y'all know how many times I've heard we are one election cycle away from doom? Every election cycle of my life, baby, I've heard we are one election cycle away from doom. We all do this. All that to say, it is hard to say, It, it is just really hard to say whether or not things are getting better or getting worse. Because some things are getting better, and then some things are getting worse. And then some of the things that some people call better, some people call worse. And some of the things some people call worse, some people call better. But one of my favorite parts about being a Christian is that my, um, my joy, my stability, doesn't have to be rooted in whether or not the arrow of civilization is pointing up or down, according to me. Because the empty tomb has already spoiled the ending for how this wild ride that we're all on is going to end. And the end is going to be the laughter of redemption, okay? Now, this is not meant to minimize our personal pain and suffering, or society's deep, deep injustice, but it is meant to make it clear that for a Christian, laughter is eternal. And sorrow, though real, just is not. G.K. Chesterton, he's one of my favorite Christian apologists. Look at that portrait. I hope someone paints a portrait of me like that one day. I don't know why they had to do that to his forehead, but the rest of it's it's great. He's a great apologist. He wrote this book called Orthodoxy, and he ended this book, which is kind of an apology for the Christian faith, a defense of the Christian faith, with this riff on why, contrary to what you may have heard, it's not that Christianity is this really sad and stuffy and pessimistic religion, whereas whatever, paganism is rowdy and it's fun and it's mischievous, but rather it really works the exact opposite way. It's that Christianity is fun, rowdy, and mischievous. Because if you haven't noticed, y'all, if you've read your New Testament, Jesus Christ, apparently a really fun guy. He was always at parties. Everybody wanted him at their party. Like, man, you think we can get Jesus to this party? Everybody's going to be there Jesus. Everybody loved Jesus. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. He was constantly criticized for being too bohemian, too morally lax. He drank too much. He hung out with sinners too much. Jesus was clearly a really, really fun time. And so listen to what Chesterton says. It says, man is more himself when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief is the superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which all things live. Christianity supremely satisfies man's ancestral instinct in this, that by its creed, joy becomes something gigantic. I love that. And sadness becomes something small. <laughs> I know that we've all walked in here today with varying loads of sadness and fear and anger and anxiety on our shoulders. I know. And look, there will be no ridding ourselves of that burden fully on this side of things. But as we, as we linger here in the wake, in the good vibes of Easter, let's just Pause. Just just hit pause on the catastrophizing for just one minute. It'll still be back there for you to go back to if you want, okay? Just hit pause on that. And let's remember that once upon a time, God gifted an old childless couple with a little baby boy named Laughter. And our Laughter remains a visible, tangible, daily reminder that we can stop freaking out because it's going to be okay. Not because you got this, you don't, <laughs> but because the tomb is empty and always will be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We come before you, and this is a room full of people, which means that this is a room full of anger, anxiety, sadness, stress, fear, God, we don't mean to do it. It's just the most natural thing imaginable because the world can be a scary and tough and traumatizing place. And so we bring it all before you. We realize that there is a sense in which we will never fully rid ourselves of these burdens we have walked in with on this side of things, but we also remind ourselves that our sadness will not get the last word. Our sorrow is not eternal. Joy and laughter will get the last word. Not because we've got it, but because you've got it. And so I pray for all my friends in this room today, new friends, old friends, some of whom have walked in today with very heavy burdens that you would remind them that it's going to be okay because the tomb is still empty and it always will be. And when all is said and done and we see how this whole thing is sorted out, we're going to be left with laughter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.